Welcome to episode four of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show is about religious freedom. It's one of those hot topics, and hopefully we can still be joyful at the end of the discussion. <laughs> it's, uh, and I'm your host, Peter Holmes. Today I'm joined by Marilyn Rodriguez, Hello, who's Peter. A, a journalist at the Catholic Weekly. Thank you, Marilyn, for she's standing in for Cormac McCann, who is very ill still. Um, we're also joined by Monica Dumit, who is our resident lawyer, writer, general rabble rouser. Um, if you've read the Catholic Weekly or any of our sites, or <laughs> then you'll know that this uh, designation it has a certain amount of appropriateness to us. Although, Monica, you've owned it. Oh, Peter, I would be offended <laughs> if it wasn't true, but I have to say it's a pretty fair call. <laughs> oh, it's good. You're raising rabble about things that matter, and even if um, uh, I have to say it's been a joy to disagree with you occasionally and agree with you because um, the actual conversation is one that we need to have. And um, if we can't have conversations where we disagree with people, it gets a very, very boring world. Um and that's a good intro to today's topic, religious freedom. I can't wait to get stuck into it. But before we get into it, let's talk about what we've been up to lately. So uh, kicking off, I've been working on leading up to uh, the first lectures, uh, especially in marriage and sexuality, and dodging around lots of these religious freedom issues. Uh, but it's, I'm very excited about the students. They're already contacting me and getting excited about it. So that's what I've been up to. Hmm. Um, I have been busy, I guess, writing for the paper and getting our kids up to their, or myself, up to the kids' parent-teacher interviews. And so far, they are going well, and hopefully tonight's will go well as well. Excellent. Hmm. Anything stand out for you, Monica? Oh, goodness. Um, fighting the good fight on euthanasia, I think. <laughs> We're looking like that's going to be coming New South Wales's way sooner than we'd hoped. Oh, so really? trying to prep for that, yeah. Um, so that's the big one for me at the moment. Okay. That leads nicely into today's topic, religious freedom, because often when we talk about issues such as euthanasia and other, other life issues, we're often sort of shut down because it's a religious thing. You religious people should stay out of the debate. This topic has always been an important one, the topic of religious freedom, especially for Catholics, but in public debate it has turned up the heat recently in several cases around the world, not the least of these being our own Israel Folau in the case of his religious tweets, but also in Canada where entire universities have been shut down, um, in the UK where, where someone got sacked for wearing a, a, a cross. Uh, there's all kinds of religious freedom questions which we can delve into today. Now, I've introduced Monica, but I should make it clear that Monica has is here because she's followed most of the public discussion, parliamentary debate and legal cases which have an impact on these things, religious, including religious freedom, um, and is a frequent contributor to, among other things, the Catholic Weekly. Um, Monica doesn't mind stirring the pot on controversial issues, but I hope to do a little bit more stirring myself in return today. So, welcome, Monica. Thanks so much. <laughs> so, firstly, we better define what is religious freedom. Um, when we talk about religious, that's a fairly broad spectrum of thing, but religious freedom probably has a very specific definition in, in not just in law, but in parliamentary sort of terms. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're talking about religious freedom, we usually look to things like the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and specifically the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and UN definitions connected to those to, to tell us what we mean when we talk about religious freedom. Um, it's There are two types of religious freedom. Okay. We talk about positive religious freedoms and negative religious freedoms. So positive religious freedoms are our abilities to 
conduct liturgies, to choose our own religious ministers, to open seminaries, to open schools and hospitals, to do all of those things that have us practicing our faith out in public, wearing distinctive religious dress or things like that. When we talk about negative religious freedom, that's really the protection against being discriminated against on the basis of our religious belief. So it's the shield that we have against other people discriminating against us on the basis of what we believe or what we don't believe. Religious freedom encapsulates your freedom to believe or to not believe. That's an important point to make there because it's not necessarily... Sorry, Mary. Well, I was going to say, um, do atheists have religious freedom then under that those definitions? Absolutely. In yep. fact, they'd be the pioneers of it really because... When you know the first kind of radicals outside of this this sphere, when Christian world was more or less dominating everything, um, were the people who didn't believe in God, and whether or not they were free to express that, because it would have been the most radical idea. Um, uh, hundred years ago, maybe two hundred years ago, you, you'd be getting a lot of trouble if you said oh, I don't believe in God. Whereas now, it's almost the opposite thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the different with the difference with atheists though, is that religious freedom belongs to individuals, but it also belongs to groups and communities. Because as we know, we exercise our religious freedom and and really our faith in and through community. Right. That's not necessarily the same for atheists. I know there are secularist organisations and things like that. But for the most part, religious freedom at an institutional and a communal level really belongs to those with some type of supernatural faith. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's expressed in building of schools, like I say, universities, hospitals, things like that. And even gathering for, for liturgies. Yep. Yeah. So how much of this, though, is under the banner of freedom of speech, freedom of association, those kinds of natural freedoms, which are like, I can be, belong to a cricket club or a, or a particular political party. I don't, but... Um, in a, in a, you know, I can choose to be a part of an organisation that stands for a particular thing, you know, a, a charitable work or something like that, and nobody's allowed to hold that against me. Um, and I'm the freedom of speech thing. It seems to be a separate issue. Where what I'm allowed to say out loud as my belief. How much of that is, you know, why, why do we need a specific thing for freedom of religion when, in fact, if if we're going to enforce freedom of speech and freedom of association? That's a really good question, and there would be no freedom of religion without the connected freedom of speech and right. freedom of association. You can't have freedom of religion in its truest sense if you're somehow re- restricting speech or you're restricting association. Okay. Mm. So they are connected. But when we look at religious belief, there's been an understanding that it goes to the identity of a person. And so international instruments that talk about rights We'll speak of rights from which no derogation can be made so that the state can't really take away from those rights even in times of public emergency. And religious belief is one of those. Right. Things like freedom of association would be something that a government would at times necessarily have to restrict, particularly in times of war or things like that. Sure. Um, well, let's push this a little bit because this is a, a, there are some things that we assume about freedoms um, – uh, usually we're asking for freedom to do what we would like to do and we're not so keen on other people having freedom to do something we would rather they didn't do. So, for example, the freedom of speech one comes up um, as being a big deal uh, more recently because the question is, is it I – mean, and lots of Christians have been screaming about freedom of religion, freedom of religion, especially with Israel Folau's, um stuff. Are we really free to say anything? Um, 
or is it just free to say what I agree with? You know, how does it how is it defined? What is actual freedom of speech defined? Well, in Australia, we actually don't have freedom of speech. <laughs> well, not not legislated, <laughs> not you mean? Yeah. Not legislated. So apart from the freedom of political communication, which is the idea that we should be able to speak about political matters, outside of that, there really is no freedom of speech in Australia. Uh, probably the classic example is you're not free to defame somebody. I can't right. go out there and say that, you know, I saw Peter kill three people on Friday night. Okay. Um because he didn't, as far as, well, I didn't see him do it. And I have an alibi. <laughs> and um, that would be defamation of character, obviously. Mm. So Yes. But that's a specific damage yeah, to damage. something that you can quantify in mm-hmm. me, right? And it's also, uh, you're not free to incite people to kill other people. You, know, you can't say you should kill all those guys because they're, you know, they barrack for the blues or something. Um, you can't say that in, in law because it's specific incitement to a specific crime. What we're talking here is about the general expression of a belief. Uh, Now, one of the things that intrigues me about this um, particular uh, idea about Israel Folau has been held up, especially by Catholics I know, as being, oh, he's the champion of religious freedom. Some of the things, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald on the 22nd published a kind of a, a background article on some of the things that the preachers have said in his little denomination, which is, by the way, is an offshoot of Hillsong, um... Uh, it does not, sorry, I should make it very clear. It's not affiliated with Hillsong. They actually had a disagreement with Hillsong and split off and did their own thing. But they specifically say that Catholics, for example, are in fact not Christians. Um, and that Catholicism is seen as a synagogue of Satan and that this um, that the mass is in fact a form of devil worship and, and it's blasphemous and all these kinds of things. Now, um, it makes it sound rather exciting. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> yes, it's, it's the most lame. It's in the news. Yeah, it's, it certainly doesn't match any... You know, it's the most lame form of uh, devil worship that I've ever heard in most cases. But in terms of um, uh, uh, would we be so keen to defend Israel Folau if we if we had that particular tweet going through the media or would we be ranting that he should be shut down? I'm not sure we'd be so keen to defend him, but we should be keen to defend him. Mm. Israel right. Folau has the right to be wrong and the preachers in his church have the right to spread an erroneous message (laughs) and that is completely erroneous, but they have the right to do that. They have the right to propose their faith to other people. So they've literally said in that article, I couldn't find it just now, but they've literally said Catholics are going to hell. Okay. So, which is pretty much in the same category as other people who have been told to go to hell uh, or that they are going to hell. Um, But my proper response to that, Peter, is to argue the point with him if I felt so inclined and felt like it was worth the energy. It's not to (laughs) petition his employer for his sacking. Mm. And that's the problem that I'm seeing. We've lost the idea that we can just disagree on something and that the idea is that if you disagree with somebody, you challenge their idea. What we've got to now is that if I disagree with you, I want to see you punished. Yeah. And I want to see you financially punished. But silenced is the key part of that. Silenced as well. To remove your platform. Now, in, in, in sense, let me play the devil's advocate a little bit here. In a certain sense, we have given a disproportionate platform to people who happen to be really good at running around with the ball, right? Now, okay, that platform has come from the fact that they can sell immense amount of advertising 
during the period of time when they're running around with the ball, right? So the advertising has a has a vested interest in this person. And if that person turns out to be to represent an idea or a, or a, or a if you like an ideology that um, is going to be harm the sales, then the advertiser, if you like, might just simply pull the ad because their their whole purpose in this is very mercenary. They're, they're just putting the money in there to get that. Um, don't, don't they have the right to pull, if you like, the money away from something because they're not getting the benefit? Of course. In a commercial sense, they absolutely have the right to pull their money away. Sure. Absolutely. And then I guess it's on Rugby Australia to decide whether or not that's worth it. Or the people who watch rugby to decide whether they care enough about that particular thing. And that's the interesting thing with Israel Folau, because if you look at the players in rugby, if you look at the supporters, you're going to find a lot of people who agree with Folau and yeah. didn't mind his views. And so... You've got to wonder who they're playing to right? in terms of their termination of his contract. Um, obviously, a lot has been spoken about Qantas and their influence in this and whether or not the threat of them to pull their sponsorship, and I'm not entirely sure that they did threaten to do that, but that was obviously on the cards. They or at least they had a conversation with Rugby Australia. Mm, and at least a concern for them. You're right, Peter, they do have the ability to do that, but then – where that leaves us as a society is it's the people with the money who get to make the rules about what's acceptable speech yes. and what you're allowed to say. It's a might-makes-right mentality. Well, okay, there's two sides to this, I guess. The, well, there's more than two sides, but the two I can think of right now are it would be wrong if all the people with the money got to tell us what to think and what to say. It would also be wrong if the purpose of them telling that was all about what makes them more money. Right. On the other hand, the very business Israel's involved in gets its money from this whole mechanism of getting money from advertising, which is they're selling because everyone's entertained by this particular thing. And uh, if you like, they're concerned, could be perceived as a self-preservation concern because they're trying to preserve their brand. So, and now if I can answer my own point, why wasn't it a problem that many other rugby players had beaten spouses, been involved in drug, drunk driving and drugs, uh, uh, rape allegations, all this sort of stuff. And they simp their contracts, they, they had a penalty, but it was nowhere near the penalty of Israel Folau's penalty. Mm. Why is it that that uh, forms such a harsh penalty? And it, they might say, they might answer, well, this is community expectations. You know, we simply have no tolerance for this kind of intolerance. Ironic in itself, but community expectations or an ideology that's more like a religion. <laughs> well, there's an interesting Good thing. Question. So Do you want to go into that? Talk a little bit more about that, Monica. Well, it does really seem mm. like this becomes quite a religious belief mm. in terms of inclusivity and non-discrimination and things like that. The LGBT lobby is incredibly powerful. You look at organised, orchestrated boycotts and things like that, that have pressured other companies like Cooper's to pull away an association with the Bible Society. Is, is there an like you, you said this is an LGBT thing as if it's an entity, right? Is there an organisation like one thing that's headed by you know I'm just playing devil's advocate here, you know, Captain LGBT or whatever, <laughs> who runs the entire organisation and tells everyone we've all got to go and get um, Monica for saying that thing on the Catholic, <laughs> this Catholic, you know what I mean? It it seems to me like 
most of the time there are certain people who agitate the starting point, but it, it's not just coming from one position. There seems to be a pylon on Twitter. Like it's not just one person sort of generating all of these hits. They, they seem to be coming from far and wide. It's, it does seem to be a, a feeling that's coming from wider than just an organization, if you like. Um, how would you respond to that in the sense that I'm not sure that it's just one kind of orchestrated campaign? No, but people form communities that sure. aren't necessarily headed by a particular person. I mean, I'm on a number of mailing lists and things like that sure. where I see articles come through trying to whip up outrage over some of these things. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, I don't want to name any of them. Well, we can, I mean, we can name them on both sides, really, because if you listen to Sydney <laughs> radio on all kinds of levels, you'll find one side trying to whip you up about one thing and another side trying to whip you up about another. Mm. That's not a new phenomenon. It, the medium might be, but I remember driving through Sydney 20 years ago, listening to shock jocks trying to get me upset about something. I think the ease of expressing your dissatisfaction is different now. So okay, yep. it, it doesn't take me five seconds to put a Facebook message onto the Qantas website to express my outrage about something or onto Twitter or to send an email off to yep. a so, company that I've never bought a product from right. saying that I'm now going to boycott <laughs> them, to to ring Foxtel and say I'm going to cancel yeah. my subscription even if I don't have one. So a letter to the editor used to be a big thing, right? Because someone had to actually sit down and write it and send it in or something. And now it's not so... It's easier to do this, you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And some people aren't going to take the, you know, the 15 minutes that it take to write a letter to the editor and go and pop it in the post like you used to do. But if it's going to take me no more than about 15 seconds to send off an, an outrageous tweet, mm. and I can do that while I'm doing something else, walking down the street. Not driving, of course. Not driving. Not driving. <laughs> it costs me nothing. Right. Uh, and so, And it's a way people can show... That they're supporting a cause, I think, is the other thing. That's an interesting point because uh, it's interesting that we still have an urge within us to want to have some kind of cause, some kind of moral thing that we stand yeah. up for. And be part of a community yeah. as well. And and it, the easiest way to do that is be agree on who we're against. Um, and if, if so-and-so's, oh, I'm outraged about that, we can all get on board on that. And it's quite scary to see, um, I once saw a, talk by Monica Lewinsky talking many, many years later about how she'd been affected by the people piling on, if you like, and and um, with with no comment at all about um, the problems in her earlier life, but just the fact, the effect of people being able to simply just pile on in, in ways that don't cost them anything and yet have a profound effect on her ability to work, on her ability to to just do anything. It's a it's a quite an interesting world. It's almost like the Wild West we're living in here in that respect. So what about this um, religious freedom thing? It, it's not just about us being free to hang out on a Sunday. It's not just about us being able to say what we can. I don't think we can say things freely in our society. Um, I can't remember who it was. There was a thinker who once said, if you want to know who controls you, figure out who you're not allowed to criticize, who you're not allowed to criticize in Australia. Now, there are some uh, quite legitimate reactions against past bad behavior where we're sort of correcting as a society to make sure we don't, for example, I remember growing up with some horrible jokes through the schools about Indigenous Australians and feeling at that time profoundly uncomfortable with it and even speaking out against it. But now you can't get away with even saying that in public, It's which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
and in a sense where there is a natural correction against some some bad stuff i also remember growing up and having the same people who joked about um uh, indigenous australians also made bragging jokes about the length of their various organs um and also bragged about uh, bashing homosexuals and i thought it was all part of the same sort of genre of stupid masculine sort of macho-ness and more or less disregarded. I told them off occasionally and they punched me for it. Um, but I find out later there were actual beatings. You know, there were even murders in, in the area I grew up. And it, it just wasn't the our, if you like, this could be a legitimate reaction, if you like, against that horror, against the what we used to be, I guess. Um have we gone too far? Uh, have we gone to the point where it's not possible to say anything in any critique of anyone? So can I say Israel Folau is a, is a numpty for, for saying what he said? <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. I think he's been a nong and he should have, you know, clarified, at least clarified what he meant. Um, uh, is that okay? Am I allowed well, to say that? Well, it's very interesting. You, you, well, you've got the right to say that, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and can I say, I mean, if I, I'd love to sit down and have a coffee with him and say, here's why you're a numpty. Um, He'd probably have a great vigorous discussion with you I about that I hope he too, would. Like I his... hope he would. Uh, but Catholics have a privileged position um, in Australia, which isn't even true in uh, places overseas. We have tax-exempt status to a certain extent. We have funding for our schools. We have all kinds of things. And, and parliamentarians have taken aim at this recently, particularly because they see this as, why are we giving them money when they're so anti what we believe in? Um, why are they getting this privileged status? Uh, how would we answer that? The tax exemptions that are available to faith-based institutions, I think in the large part are a recognition of their contribution to the community. So all of the social welfare work that the churches do does have not only sort of a moral benefit to the community, but also a financial one to the government and ultimately to the taxpayer. And yeah, social, like there's social capital in it. There's social capital in it. Uh, And so the people who are donating money to churches already have themselves paid tax on that money. And so they're giving it again to contribute to the works of the church, which are generally offered to people without discrimination on the basis of belief. That's right. Catholic hospitals open to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And increasingly so are Catholic schools. And so the idea then is that the tax exemptions are part of the recognition of that. If Catholics were providing healthcare and education only to our own and to nobody else, I'm not entirely sure that the position would be the same. It'd be interesting though, because there'd still be 20% of the population, which is still, you know, there's still a a factor there. Then it's still a public service to be able to to, uh, help Catholics in that way. That's not the Catholic tradition, though, is it? The tradition has always been to be available for, for anyone oh, yeah, as much yes, as possible. Yes. Yeah. And, and whenever Catholics have provided that service, they've, they've aimed to do that, to, mm. to be open to everyone. And because it's a human need, these things are human needs which we provide. Now, the question, of course, is um, if someone goes to a Catholic school, uh, why do they have to get the Catholic thing? They have to go Catholic classes, and well, this is part of the deal. We, you know, you come to a Catholic school, that's what you get. You're not, we're not, we haven't grabbed anyone off the street and forced them into a Catholic school. Um, what about where the religious expression quite clearly is contrary to what we would say most people in society would uh, would think? So, um, we talked about hate speech. We talked about um, uh, 
you know, ang- things that make people angry. Some people have accused Catholics of hate speech when we have opposed certain lifestyles. So if we say that um, we're pro-traditional, uh, whatever that means, word means, traditional marriage or the, the one man, one woman kind of marriage, that that's hate speech. I think that was in Tasmania, was it? They, they listed it as hate speech against people of a, a different sexuality or gender. Um, and that if someone was pro-gay marriage, that this was a hate speech thing for them just to oppose them. How is that different to to inciting violence, if you like? Well, if I can explain a little bit about the laws in Tasmania sure. and why they're unique. Uh, in the rest of Australia, under the anti-discrimination laws, your right to expression of a religious belief doesn't allow you to incite harm or violence against another person or group of persons. Which is probably a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. and we absolutely agree with that. But in Tasmania, the laws don't only prevent you from inciting harm, inciting violence, but from offending, insulting or humiliating somebody, which is obviously a much lower standard of quote-unquote harm. And who decides who's humiliated? That's the key issue, isn't it? Absolutely, and what humiliation actually is. And so when the Catholic bishops a few years ago, back in 2014 or 2015, issued their pastoral letter on marriage, the reason that they went after Archbishop Julian of Hobart wasn't because there was something particularly egregious about him or about what he did, but more because that was where the most lax laws were in the country. So um, there was a media release from Australian Marriage Equality and Rodney Croom was heading it up at the time and he encouraged people to make a complaint in Tasmania. Oh, is that the case? I've forgotten that. Yeah, so that's what happened. It wasn't. It didn't arise naturally out of the lady that complained. No, and in fact, she didn't even receive a copy of the pastoral letter, so she didn't have any children in Catholic schools, didn't attend a Catholic parish. She had to go online, look for the document, and then when she found it, read it and to be offended by it to then make a complaint. Right. Uh, So that's why it happened in Tasmania. And I think what we're seeing is it's understandable that you shouldn't be able to speak in a way that harms another person. Mm. But what we're seeing is this broadening of the definition of harm so that even somebody feeling offended comes within the definition of harm. And so that's that's the real push. It's really interesting. I'm sorry, I'm going to digress for a minute. But in a Senate inquiry that happened earlier this year, the former... Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, the one who dealt with Archbishop Julian's case, said, look, the problem wasn't that the letter said what it said and that they were presenting Catholic doctrine, but it was that they said it was true. <laughs> oh, right. So you can say whatever you want as long as you don't think it's true. Yeah, exactly ridiculous. right. And so they were saying that we're, we're more than free to, to profess the Catholic faith as long as we don't try to convince anybody that it's true. Or even state that it's true for me. Um, this is... Okay, let's talk about harm. It is at least conceptually possible for a religious belief to cause harm, right? So there have been numerous uh, examples in New South Wales where a cult, for example, has promoted views which have been caused people quite serious damage psychologically and physically, some involving um, extending into abusive situations, that kind of thing. There are um, uh, several situations, in even in Central Australia and um all over the place where um, religions, if you like, get to the vulnerable people and convince them of things that are actually quite dangerous for their health. 
Um, so, you know, withholding um, medical treatments, uh, you know, pushing against um, very, very sound health policies or things like that, which could be harmful. Now, are we saying they're free to say that? Um, are we saying, for example, that Muslims can uh, promote uh, polygamy, Sharia law? Uh, could we impose canon law on Australia? Uh, <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm just sort of pushing the boundaries mm. in terms of what we can do. Mm. Well, religious freedom has to be compatible with a plural society. It's not a singular thing. Right. Religious freedom isn't freedom for Catholics only. So my freedom can't, can't actually restrict your freedom. Is that what you're saying? I don't know if that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, it, the, me having freedom does not preclude you having freedom. The same freedom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you being a, I mean, I'm not saying this, but it's, if you were in fact um, uh, a Muslim or, so, or a Mormon or something, that doesn't stop me being a Catholic. Exactly You right. holding a Mormon belief Let's be clear to the listener, Monica is not a Mormon. <laughs> she does not represent the Mormon no, at all. Working here at the Archdiocese, sometimes <laughs> I threaten to go be a Hare Krishna, <laughs> um, particularly when I hear them sort of singing joyfully down the street, but I've never never threatened to be a Mormon. Right. I, I've never been attracted to that particular music. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, maybe the, the rock and roll side of it would get me more. Um, in terms of... I'm just saying that believing one thing, someone else believing something that I don't believe isn't stopping me believing what I'm believing. Exactly right. Right. And so when we talk about something like Sharia law, and I'm not familiar enough with it, mm. but as I understand it, that that is a theocracy. Right. And so the idea is that there is no difference between the the law of the faith and the yep. law of the state. Which would yeah. be similar if we put canon law in and said, oh, you know, you guys don't have to have it, but Catholics have to obey canon law and this is the law of the state kind of thing. It would be a similar problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I've only done one subject of canon law, but <laughs> there are just certain things in there that the state just has no interest in. I did my assignment on how long a parish priest should be staying in his parish. The state doesn't care about that, nor should it, but they're laws that govern specifically the church. Right. If you're trying to, how am I going to say this without bringing up the confession thing? Um, <laughs> you can you've bring just up done the confession it, I've just done it. You've just done it. Let's um, get into it. The issue is where the interests of the state and the law of the, the church or the law of the other religion conflict. And that's where we get into a little bit of controversy as we're going to be seeing in the next few months with laws about the confessional seals. So mm -hmm. for those who don't know... There is currently an inquiry going on for all of the states who haven't yet passed laws abolishing the seal of confession to have that abolished. So we will be talking about that more in the coming months. Let's be clear about this. The <clears throat> What we're talking about here is that there is a belief in the Catholic Church that once the priest, whatever the priest hears in the, in the sacrament of confession is simply not to be shared outside of the sacrament of confession. So it keeps an absolute seal on it. When we talk about the government parliaments abolishing the seal of confession, they're not, they're not actually able to change Catholic doctrine, but what they're doing is removing certain legal protections which allowed the priest to not reveal something in confession. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, so just be clear about that because, in fact, um, if you go to confession, the priest will simply not reveal what was in confession. And what's what's going to happen is that they'll set up a situation where um, a priest will be prosecuted for it in some way uh, in order to make the point. But the priest has no choice. He, he'll have to go to jail 
Mm. He just simply doesn't have a choice. It's the vow he's taken. And there are some priests I've spoken to who are saying that maybe what we need is a handful of priests in jail over the sacrament of confession. And they're quite ready to go, aren't they? And to remind us of how important it is, I think in speaking about religious freedom, one of the things I often often try and impress upon people is that the best way that we can protect religious freedom is actually by exercising the freedoms we currently have. We've been taking them for granted for too long, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm sick of reading commentary on the seal of confession that includes, well, most Catholics don't go to confession anyway. How can I expect (laughs) a politician to stand up for my right to go to confession and for that to be a sacred moment between me and God if I'm not lining up to attend confession? Exactly. How can I expect a priest to go to jail for for my right to do that if, again, if I'm if not exercising it, it? If you're not exercising it. We had one fellow on our Catholic Weekly Facebook page respond to it. It might have been one of your columns that we put up recently. Um, and it was a little, it was, I was happy to see it, but then I was a little bit sad. It was bittersweet because it was only one person who made this comment. And he said, since all this began, I've started going to the confession because I realized I had taken it for granted. And this was something that that's now being threatened. And I'm, he said, wow. I'm loving it. So and I've, I meant to get back in touch with that, with that guy, but, um, but mainly, yeah, just good on him. And I wish I'd seen more like that, but I've started going back more frequently because it's just reminded me of how valuable it is and what a lovely sacrament, what a you know, mm. precious sacrament it is. Well, it's a, if I can explore this a little more for perhaps someone who has been away for a while or um, who's never experienced this, I came in as a Protestant, so I, was, I became a Catholic at, at the age of 30, and the experience of walking into a very small room, and I mean, the priest doesn't even know who you are most of the time. In a proper confessional, he can't even see you, you're talking through a grate. And, and you get to unload and you know nothing of this. This goes straight to God's ear, you know, straight to God's ear. And we get directly God's answer because the God's answer is always, we know what the end result of this is. The God's answer is always um, to those who are penitent, to those who are genuinely expression, expressing desire to change and, and to you know, ask for forgiveness. God's answer is always merciful. Uh, and now clearly it's not just to get out of jail free card for anything. And I, I, I can't confess something I'm going to do in the future because that's presumption. But um, but it's a beautiful thing to walk out of the confessional. Firstly, to know that's gone, that's gone, and God, it's gone for God as well. Um, and now, and to what you'll actually do, and this is the part of the question on the confessional thing. If we can get a little sidetracked, it's actually not going to achieve anything. It seems more targeted at Catholics because it's actually not going to achieve what they think, what they claim it's going to achieve. And that is, if you're going to use it as a way of catching criminals, firstly, you'd have to ask. Are there any instances where something has been confessed where it would have changed a case? And in all, every case that I've looked into, and you'd probably have more knowledge than I, the person who has been the perpetrator has admitted, I never said this in confession. In other words, there's, a, there's never an acknowledgement. And the reason would be is that the confessor would follow it up. The, there's still boundaries within which the confessor can you know, put restrictions on them and say, listen, we can't give forgiveness to something that's ongoing. You need to demonstrate this level of contrition, which means you've got to change things. You need to come with me to self-report or something like that. People just simply aren't going to confess something if they think the priest's going to tell everyone. <laughs> I mean, why would you go into confessional and, and say this out loud if, you, if they think they're going to um, tell everyone about it? Um, and it, it robs those of us who genuinely value this freedom, this, this ability to, if you like, unload to God, 
It makes it look like Big Brother is watching you in every situation. It invades almost the most private sanctum of religious freedom in the country, I'd say. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think now that I've got uh, two parents here of quite large families, um, I'm going to throw this one out at you because in South Australia, the law isn't just about you know, child sexual abuse, which was obviously the the focus of the Royal Commission, but any type of actual or potential harm to a child, physical or emotional. Right. And so, I don't know, and I'm not haven't bugged either of your confessions, <laughs> confessions, but imagine that at some point you've walked in and gone, I've just lost my temper with the children. Right. I've just, I've had Absolutely. it up to here. And you need to be able to confess those things. And, and you know, even good parents do terrible, terrible things, um, you know, hit their children, maybe unjustly, out of temper, like you say, um, all sorts of things that then they you know, truly need to go really um, almost, also for the sake of the children, um, go and confess it and receive that forgiveness and healing. And if you don't have that outlet, that what you create is a, is a society who suppresses all these things. It becomes and, a more dangerous society. And, and won't admit errors. Um, one of This is actually a really important part of it. If you suppress certain kinds of language, certain kinds of things, you don't actually change people's minds. And this is what I'm finding in my study of masculinity, what I'm finding. I go online, I go to the deeper web parts, and I ask the question... Uh, you know, about treatment of women, how they view women. And the guys who have been abysmal, misogynist, um, and have very, very uh, porn-related ideas about women haven't gone away. They're just not saying it in public where they know the censorship is. They're they're expressing it vividly and horribly in in detail in areas where they think they are anonymous. They're not, but they think they are anonymous. And it comes out in such unhealthy expressions. I wish that they would say it out loud to me in a public place so I could actually call them to account and actually have a real discussion with them and say that we need to talk about that because that's really seriously unhealthy. Um, and in a sense, I were almost grateful to someone who expresses uh, you know, an opinion that I have, uh, I think reveals a profoundly unhealthy worldview. So I, at least I know where I stand with them. And they're now not no longer going to date my daughters. <laughs> it's like I, I wish that people would say it out loud so that at least I can engage with the idea or decide I'm not going to engage with that idea. So uh, I wish that people would judge me on the basis of, okay, here's, here's the idea. And then what does that mean? And ha they have to talk it through with me. If they, if they think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. I'm quite happy about that. And in a sense, is it, is this whole aversion to having religious freedom to say these things, actually an aversion to any kind of conflict, any kind of a, how do we disagree rationally and, and civilly, if you like? Is it a fear? I was just another, throwing another question. Maybe Monica can choose what you want to answer. Is there also a deep fear of deep religious commitment in our culture today? Because the fact is, if you're a deeply religious committed person, you will die for your faith. You'll do anything. You'll, you'll, you know, break it affects the, every decision break the in your law, life. To be honest, like if yeah. it's an unjust law, you'll break the law to abide by your convictions. And that must be terrifying to people who do not understand authentic religious belief and traditions. Is that part of the problem? Terrifying, but I think attractive. Certainly on, in some sense, if you see what someone who is willing to die for something, there's got to be at least... Some, I don't know. So you've got, you've got to get some kudos for that, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, 
It depends on the manner talking... of death, we should say, because uh, <laughs> yeah. and well, there's no Christians who are suicide bombers. Which is no, exactly right. And, and it is a Catholic podcast, right? So we do understand within the context of a Christian tradition, I guess. Hmm. So yeah, when we probably. talk about dying for something, we're not talking about entering a war zone and fighting. It's where Catholics, through um, resistance, uh, so non-compliance, passive non-compliance, so resistance to to an unjust uh, imposition on them or an unjust uh, law like Sir Thomas More, uh, where he was required to agree with some with mm. the king, in fact, about his marriage status, and he but says, they, "I can't." But they not, simply won't cave in. It's but there's no threat true. that that will. And he was civil, and yeah. he was genuinely committed to the English crown. He just he just simply would not agree to affirm a, another view, uh, which he believed was um, incorrect, profoundly incorrect, and therefore he was beheaded for it. I think. Yep. Um, that's what we're talking about in terms of giving your life for an idea. Or the, the earliest Christians, when they stood in the in the arena and they were said, all you have to do is tip this little bit of wine out and say to the gods, offer a sacrifice to the gods in that way, just a little bit of wine, and we'll say, you can go. And they said, no, this is idolatry. It means denial of Christ. We will not do this. And they went to their horrible, torturous deaths on that basis. That that sacrifice had a witness which we're, we're not really familiar with in the modern society. Absolutely. Sorry, yeah, to be clear, it's dying is something that you would accept. If you had to. If you had to. It's not something you go seek. looking for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely not something I'd go looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a wuss in that area. But uh, are all ideologies um, equal in this particular sense? So, for example, um, I remember chuckling when they, when someone first put Jedi as a religion on the census and it was kind of a joke thing. Uh, and then it got a little bit more seriously when they had like, tens of thousands of people joined in on this particular idea. Now, I'm almost certain that most of the people, there's probably some nutcases out there, but most of the people who ticked that just went, ha oh, that's pretty funny <laughs> and tick it. Um, but there are, there are, it seems to be like this idea of religion is almost like a, a kind of a side thing. It's just like a fetish or a, you know, something I do on the side. This is my spirituality, which is a tiny little corner of my private life, which I'm not allowed to say or do anything publicly about. Um, have we actually limited religion to the private sphere so harshly that you're not allowed to say it out loud? Um, I don't know. Do you guys feel free to talk about your religion with people at a, at a barbecue when you know that they don't share your religion? Um, someone came up to me last year sometime, and it was, it was at... Um uh, wake a uh, reception after a funeral, and it was a relative of my stepmother. And he said to me, "I'd never met him before this day, but he'd obviously spoken to my stepmother about me." And he came and sort of in conversation. Don't remember what it was particularly about, just something around him. He suddenly said, "So, when did you become so um, religious?" <laughs> and I thought my immediate instinct was to say, "I'm not religious. I'm not religious. I didn't think of myself. <laughs> what do you mean I'm religious? What just because I go to what would the definition church on of Sundays? Religious? Yeah." And, <laughs> Uh, what makes you such a you know religious person? And I thought that was really odd. And I think, and that seemed weird to be talking about religion in polite conversation. Right. But then we're followers of Christ. Um, how polite would have been at your regular Jewish barbecue? Yeah, what you know, made, why are you so Jewish? Time, <laughs> to start talking about the stuff Jesus had been saying, it would really put lots of people off. It might G get you stoned. Jim Gaffigan's a in a, one way, a kind of a, a, a lay Catholic. Um, theologian, not theologian. He's not a theologian, although sometimes he is. He's a he's a comedian. Isn't he a friend of Bishop Robert Barron? He's a friend, um, but he calls himself a bad Catholic. He's a theologian by association, and he refers to him his wife as a Shiite Catholic, um, <laughs> <laughs> as a kind of a she's more serious about it than I am kind of thing. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, we're we're joking about this, and there's no disrespect to anyone who happens to be Shiite, oh, no. but the, the point is, is that um, there's a reputation there of being quite serious about it, and the idea that there's people who are ultra Catholics, and then there's people who are kind of just culturally Catholic and go to mass occasionally, and there's others who their grandmother once took them to a mass. You know, there's a kind of a, a scale of involvement, but um, I'm finding like. One of my next door neighbours, I introduced myself to, and the conversation was going quite well. And then eventually, they said, "What do you do?" Oh, I'm a lecturer, and they said, "What are you lecturing?" Mm, ancient things, mm-hmm. <laughs> really interesting. And I'm trying not to push it because I know where it's going. And then I said, "It's theology," and he said, "You can keep that. I don't want to hear that again." Really? And, and we haven't like we waved to each other across the street, but that's as far as the conversation's gone. Now, fair enough. That's his choice. He made it clear. I respect that. Um, but it's interesting that. Um, there's a very clear sort of line that some people just don't want to do religion. So I can have a conversation about ancient cultures. I can mm-hmm. have a conversation about masculinity. I can have a conversation about all kinds of things. But when I talk about religion, there's kind of a like a block there. And um, and again, talking to some very good people by soccer sidelines, I think I mentioned this a couple of podcasts ago, uh, they were very angry with Israel Folau's stuff, specifically because his views were not welcome in our society. We don't even want to hear them. Um, have we got so precious about this? And here's a good test. It's all right for us to say, is everyone else being precious about Israel Folau? What about someone who is actually blasphemous? Should we argue for the freedom for people to blaspheme against the Catholic faith? I, look, I Doesn't it happen on a regular basis yeah. already? And where we... Yeah, look, it's happening. There's no doubt it's happening. Yes. I'm I'm into comedy, stand-up comedy, and it's almost constant in through comedy. The easy target is the Catholic Church, or especially priests, uh, or the, our beliefs. Or people's idea of the Catholic Church. But my question is, and I this is the reason I ask this, is that I frequently see Facebook posts and Twitter things of Catholics who are outraged at someone said this blasphemous about Our Lady or something oh, like right. that, and they we should ban this, we should shut oh, this down. Gosh. And you go, look, guys, the freedom you have is the same freedom you're trying to shut down in others. That's right. Freedom of speech is not about what I want to say. It's about the freedom to say something. And um, I mentioned before the podcast, Monica, that um, in this particular question, not in other questions, but in this question, I'm a fan of Brendan O'Neill's version of freedom of speech, is that we have to treat people like grown-ups. We have to say, you're big enough and educated enough to actually respond intelligently to someone and that intelligent response might be you're an idiot i'm not going to talk to you anymore now that's fine that's within the range of possibilities but we also to shut down ideas is almost like treating us like babies that we we're incapable of filtering out what's true and what's not and engaging with an idea we're treating ourselves like we're just um we're so fragile and so incompetent in arguments so this is kind of a nanny state thing yeah i look I was thinking to the Ruddock recommendations, and two of them were about removing blasphemy laws. So there are okay. still blasphemy laws. Do we on have books. them in Australia? Yeah, we still have blasphemy right. laws in Australia. In, oh, wow. in certain places, I think in one in shipping and maybe in a particular state or shipping. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funnily <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'm just trying to think how you'd. No, no, we shouldn't go there. No, but. Um, and so there's been no opposition from the church about the recommendation to remove those mm. uh, because I'm. I, I guess I'm with you, Peter. It is, I might not like it, but do I think somebody should be punished for it? It is a different question, isn't it? Whether I, I actually think it's a good idea to help someone promote a blasphemous idea or whether they can do it on my dollar or my platform or whether they should do it from a government platform or 
whether or not I should, there should be laws against it. And that's a different question. Yeah, actually, interesting you say about doing it on my platform or helping to promote it, because this comes comes into all of the stuff about refusing service. Yeah. And we hear the, the conversations about, you know, should a baker be able to refuse to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding and blah, 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 and all of those. And I'll leave those debates to the side for the moment. But if I was a printer and somebody wanted to come and print blasphemous material, I should have a right to be able to refuse that and just go, look, well, you know, yes, you're free, but so am I. So the, where's the line in there? Is the line that I don't agree with you in general or is the line that this particular activity commits me to material cooperation in what you're doing? I think it's the latter. That this particular activity is cooperating with what you're doing. Right. Even if it's not material cooperation and I'm not a moral mm. theologian and I'm not going to try to be. Let's test it out. Let's test it out. So could I cook? I, see, I think I could cook the food which was then used at a, let's say, a gay wedding reception because it's food. People need food. It's a good. Yeah. Hooray. I could perhaps even cook a cake that's not necessarily marked in any particular way <laughs> and it could sit there, you know what I mean, because it's food and people could eat it. Mm. Um, uh, it seems to me that the distinction comes when you're committing me to writing messages or, or putting sp- things very, very specific to a certain activity that I can't morally commit to. I take that, but I think that that's a decision for you to make and not the state and not the courts. Okay. Well, see, if someone else draws the line somewhere else, let's say they draw the line at, uh, I'm an ambulance officer, I turn up and someone's bleeding on the thing and and I find out he's gay, I'm going to leave him there because I don't agree with his being gay. See, I think, so we've got to have a line somewhere. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, in talking about participation in an activity. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, not when you're talking about... Uh, I'm, I'm testing out the boundaries here. So <laughs> so it, where, where would the boundary be then in that case? What could you do and what couldn't you do? Now, clearly, in that case, I just think you mean, any uh, human need, sorry. So you mean as a legislator or a, trying to... Yeah. Look, morally speaking, there are two... You're right. There's two separate questions here. There's one, what I, what can I morally do as a Catholic? And you can't, you can't formally cooperate with evil. Um, there's certain things you can do uh, which might be material cooperation and evil. So if I'm a taxi driver and someone says, take me to Wilson Street, I don't know. I just made up Wilson Street, by the way. Don't mm. look that up in the, in the and Google. It's a, and it's a well-known red light district or something. Uh, red light district or an abortion clinic or something. But you know, I can assume Wilson Street is Wilson Street. I can legitimately, morally provide this service of transport to that place. But if they ask me, take me to the abortion clinic, that then has implicated me in a specific action, You know, formally cooperating with something there. Now, uh, that's a Catholic distinction I want to make clear there. But the law um, doesn't seem to make that distinction. It seems to say, or at least the way that's attempting to be enforced now, it seems to be saying, uh, if someone refuses me anything that I want, um, it doesn't matter what, how it contradicts their particular beliefs. Um, it's that I have been denied some sort of affirmation of my beliefs. So that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the difference between the ambulance uh, I'm personnel grateful that you're that talking our fellow about. Is getting to hospital. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> and this is about, you know, providing a service that you could feasibly get really anywhere else. It's not as if you're going to be the only caterer in right. the country or, you know, in a particular area or the, the only reception venue or something like okay. that. Um so I think that there is a reasonableness there, but I'm just really cautious about putting those 
those questions, particularly in the hands of the courts, because we've seen in recent times that if you put stuff like this before the courts, it's usually the the believers that lose out. Right. Um, what if, if, but even if they won, it's not a great great way to solve problems, is it? No. No. See, uh, this is it. I mean, it's not a... Even Christians these days seem to be arguing almost um, pragmatically in the bad way, saying we won't win this way so we won't argue this way. And you go, well, hang on. What's true here? What's actually the truth? And even if we lose the argument, isn't it better to be truthful about our argument and lose having clearly stated it? You're grimacing at me, Monica. What what have I I said wrong there? No, that's fine. But sometimes it's the... You can still have a true argument. It might not be the best one, but that's the one sure. that's going to help you win. And I have no problem using that. You shouldn't use a dishonest argument. Though. No, definitely not a dishonest argument. But I'll take an example um, from the marriage campaign. So I was, for those who don't know, I was the communications director for the No campaign in uh, the Marriage plebiscite, And there was this push for, you know, if only we just told the truth and the beauty of marriage and had lots of beautiful images up there of beautiful heterosexual couples getting married, mm-hmm. that would make people vote no. Right. right. And the campaign message was really, this is how a change in the law will affect your freedoms and your family and things like that. Right. Still completely true. And, you know, 18 months later, we're starting to see some of those consequences. Um, but maybe it wasn't the purest argument okay. out there. And we... There was a real uncomfortableness, I remember, uh, from a lot of people saying, well, you know, no, let's just go out and proclaim theology of the body. <laughs> and if we do that, then everybody will agree with us. No. Really? Uh, yeah. And, and sort of in an eight-week campaign or whatever it was that we yeah. had. Mm. Almost no time. You just had to get to something that was going to work, but also be true. So Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you absolutely everything we said was true, mm. but... It wasn't the, All right. the gonna, highest and best argument. I'm going to jump in here and be a, be a controversial person. I was, <laughs> I was one of the people who quite publicly on, on Facebook said, I don't think we should campaign at all. So clearly we're in, in oh, a I different think I campaign. remember that. Um, I think we lost the argument about the public um, sort of status of marriage 50 years ago. I think that the idea of marriage that we're, we're trying to, if you like, cling to in terms of the public recognition of marriage was lost 50 years ago. Almost nobody thinks about marriage as being the, and this is the problem, that all the laws about marriage are based on the assumption that it's the best place to raise children and the safe, you know, the best outcome for humanity, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and that it's all about that. So all the laws are about protecting uh, spouses from each other if, if something goes wrong or uh, protecting the children within that relationship. And and all of the privilege which is accorded to marriage, tax breaks, things like that, are based on that presupposition. Almost nobody believes that about marriage anymore at all. And even John Howard's, I think it was John Howard's attempt to put the definition in, was it him? Or was it a bit later? They put the definition of one man and one woman. Even that was inadequate because it excluded the, the idea of children and excluded the, the, the concept of personal fulfillment. It was very much about let's just lock it into this with no real explanation. When we set ourselves out, and this is only my opinion, but when we set ourselves out to oppose this kind of legal recognition of what pretty much 90% of the people out there already think about marriage, we, we more or less were in a hiding to nothing. I think that they, they saw it, they were able to paint us as the negative naysayers. And certainly that was the experience I had from, the, from my friends who were on the other side of the debate. It was easy for them to paint us that way. And then if I was quite happy to campaign for 
provisions within the legislation to protect Catholics and Christians' rights to hold an opposing opinion and to protect our ability to engage with society in a way which is according to our conscience. But I just think that um, in entering into that public sphere and attempting to hold on to something which actually doesn't exist in public discourse at least, we put ourselves almost, I think, against religious freedom in a sense because these people, we talked about non-belief. If 90% of Australians don't actually believe marriage is about children anymore, that's horrible but it's their belief. Mm. And you mean if they th- if they believe marriage is about, about having a wedding, the ability to have your own wedding. What do I get out of it is really yeah. what most people are thinking about. And if yeah. I'm not getting fun out of it, I'll just leave. And it's a, it's a mercenary, very much a self-serving thing. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's like that, but that mm. seems to be if it's not working for me, I can leave. And it's all about me and my my self-satisfaction. Now, that that's wrong. I think it's wrong personally. But if 90% of Australia thinks that that's the way it is and that's the way they treat marriage and that's the way they approach marriage, then talking about what laws should be in place, it should just be about, well, I want freedom to do what I want. I don't want to impose that on the whole of Australia. Yeah, except that marriage is a social good and stable marriages ordered towards children are a social good. And we've seen incredible destruction of society in a sense corresponding with the destruction of our understanding of marriage. And so this isn't just about Catholics fighting for the definition of marriage that we believe and that we hold to be true and that we're seeking it to seeking to impose on other people. It's actually just we're also about the common good. Yep. And this is something that's really it was more about the common good. If there was absolutely no difference, if there was honestly no difference between what you know, the majority of society believe about marriage and what we believe about marriage, then then maybe not. But there are some things that are just fundamentally true. I mean, this is all of the arguments that, where we talk about choice. Are we talking about choice when it comes to abortion, when we're talking about choice sure. when it comes to euthanasia debates? There are things that we campaign for um, that are really just about the common good and the social good, even if the prevailing opinion of the day doesn't agree with us. Mm. And I, I don't know, I, I think that... And also, that as well as promoting the common good, I guess you'd also say um, being mindful of the most vulnerable children, for example, that, or see, that's a very good elderly point. in the case of euthanasia. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a very good point. The, the laws up till now have been about the most vulnerable. They've been about protecting mm. those who are vulnerable either to an abusive spouse or to parents who are dysfunctional and therefore protecting their their basic rights in the in those situation. Um, my complaint is that if if marriage is and I think part of it is acknowledging the reality that the definition of marriage has changed in most people's minds up to this point. And the laws simply aren't meaningful anymore. The reasons we give tax exemptions and, and all sorts of other things to marriage just simply don't mean anything anymore. Um, I thought we should look at that and actually if you like, remove it from this idea of the definition of relationships and actually talk about, well, what about the children? And there were some effective, um, I think, uh, contributions to that campaign which actually tried to bring it back to the children. I I thought that was good. But um, in terms of selling our message, uh, whenever we, and this is just a, a preference of mine, whenever we're pushing the negative angle, we lend ourselves to the caricature of being the naysayers. And, and that, I think that's a danger um, in that sense. However, it's, I mean, what's done is done, and it's clearly not what we, we hoped for in that sense. Um, 
It's what I think the test remains, though, whether how our commitment to religious freedom is tested by how vigorous or how consistent we are in upholding it for those we don't agree with. Would would you say that's fair? Yeah, and how much? Well, you you show what you really believe by the way you act. So how we're um, how we are not making use of it, but how we are exercising our own freedom of religion is most, I think, important. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, how we do show our concern for other people's freedom of religion. I think that's incumbent on all of us, particularly here, to really focus on that yeah. first and foremost. So I don't before agree Before we with... even speak about it. Like it's just, it yeah. should just be fundamental, fundamental part of how we live our daily lives. And I, th- I think it is in Monica's case. She definitely, um, <laughs> she pre- definitely lives what she speaks. <laughs> well, this is it. And, and there's a certain respect we can have. I don't agree with Israel Folau on almost everything. Um, but I respect the fact that he has the freedom to say what he does. And I, I hope that he remains free to do that. I hope that that's, um, uh, I think that, Sport should be out of that particular sphere, by the way. I'm particularly annoyed by sport entering, not just Israel Folau, but they, they had a go at Gary Ablett. They've had a go at um, all kinds of political um, realms recently, and that, that's, that's just annoying. All right, so, so Monica, at the moment in Australia, we've got a prime minister who is very happy to, well, he says he's very, very happy to go ahead and, and um, get a Religious Freedom Act in place. There is a bit of um, contention about that, though, because there hasn't been any consultations yet with religious leaders. Um, what is your take <laughs> on that? And, and what do you think um, would be the best case scenario in terms of religious freedom legislation in Australia? Oh, look, if I had the solution to religious freedom legislation in Australia, I'd be making a lot of money somewhere. Um, but... The thing is, is that what's being proposed at the moment, and we only know this from what we're reading in the media, because as you mentioned, religious groups haven't yet been consulted. Apparently they will be at some stage, we're told, but we don't know when. And it does seem to be as though things are wanting to be hurried along. Is that right? We don't want to be a rubber stamp. Mm. If you're going to be serious about religious freedom, then you actually need to consult the people who are going to be affected. Which also includes people who aren't religious, but might feel threatened by freedoms. Absolutely. Um, but in any event, so what we're hearing at the moment is that it's not a religious freedom act that's coming. It's a religious discrimination act. So when I was talking in the beginning about the distinction between positive and negative religious freedoms, this would only really protect negative religious freedoms. So is that not ideal? Well, it would mean that you would be protected against being discriminated on the basis of your faith, Mm -hmm. but it still wouldn't protect a number of key things. Like if, if the law that the government is proposing, as we understand from the media, a religious discrimination act is passed, the Archbishop Julian Porteous case still wouldn't be fixed. Right. Right. And so I think that in many in many respects, that's the real test, right? Is what law you're proposing going to mean that an archbishop can be taken to the Anti-Discrimination Commission for preaching the Catholic teaching on marriage? Right, that's a the, good test. That's a good test. Will Catholic schools still be allowed to teach the Catholic faith? As I mentioned before, the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner or the former Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner was saying that we should be allowed to present it, but we shouldn't be allowed to present it as truth. Mm. You know, will our schools still be able to teach Catholic teaching? Will they be able to require teachers to uphold the Catholic faith? Um 
and not to undermine it? Will our Catholic institutions still be able to operate as Catholic institutions with a Catholic identity? Mm. Uh, so those types of things aren't covered by a Religious Discrimination Act. No. And so these are the questions that we need to ask. Yeah. Um, I'll, give, I'll give one example on the education space. So again, in one of these inquiries, the question came up about sex education and not only sex education, but also Catholic teaching on things like surrogacy and IVF. And it was suggested that if a Catholic school taught that IVF and surrogacy were against Catholic teaching, that that might be seen as discrimination against rainbow families. Right. And so the idea is you might have a child in there of a same-sex couple who was conceived using artificial reproduction, but the school would no longer be able to teach that because that would be discriminating against that child. So these are the types of things that we really need to get clear because mm-hmm. if a Religious Discrimination Act isn't going to get us there, then we need to be insisting that what we really need is positive protections for religious freedom to be able not to, to go out and do anything new, but just to continue the way that we have been and the way that we've been serving the community for so long. Yeah. They've tried to shut down Catholic schools in the past, by the way. It happened in Victoria where the where the Victorian government decided to, I think, to pull funding, didn't they, or something like that. This was way, way, way back. And um, the bishops just said, all right, fine, we'll shut down our schools. And the government and where panicked. where all the kids going to go? <laughs> this was Goulburn. This was Goulburn. Okay, right. And this was, no, this was before they had any Catholic school funding, but they said to them, you need to upgrade all of your toilet blocks. And the Catholics were like, well, that's going to cost us. I know, I'm talking way, way back. X in, amount of money. Like, bishop. Like, you know, 50 years. 60. Yeah, yeah. This is this was Goulburn. Oh, really? The Goulburn school strike. And <laughs> so they closed the schools in Goulburn and all of the kids showed up at the public schools in Goulburn and then they were like, okay, well, we're going to give you funding <laughs> for those toilets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Um, right. And look, there may be a time when we're going to have to play that card again. Um, and it may not be the worst thing in the world if we have to stand up. I was going to say, Catholicism has been made illegal before. And we've had a pretty good run, (laughs) like fairly pretty good run. I know a a checkered history, especially at the start, but um, fairly good run here in this country. And I don't mind really having to come out and be out and proud Catholics. I'm not not real keen to be persecuted myself personally, but uh, as Marilyn said, um, we are not scared. If you, I mean, being a Catholic yeah. means you're not scared to actually be it, even if it costs. And uh, to be honest, if you're opposed to Catholicism and you're listening to this, be careful because every time Catholicism has been persecuted, they grow. You know, it's it's almost the factor which you can guarantee Catholicism, Catholicism will thrive is to persecute. It's it's look through history. Every single time you pick on Catholics, they get more of them and they get stronger and they get more clear identities. You look at the countries who are very clearly Catholic and that's because of recent persecutions. That's kind of a warning to you. The worst thing that happened to Catholicism (laughs) was being really cushy. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So, uh, as I said, um, not really keen for it, but uh, there's a word of warning for you. It's probably time to start wrapping up this particular conversation. But after all that talk about freedoms, it's now time for a segment we call One Minute Wonder, which is where we talk about something, we share something we've seen, heard or experienced this week that's made us stop and wonder, something that's made us smile, appreciate life more or wonder about the the beauty of creation. So, um, Marilyn, can I put you on the spot? Yeah, our our six-year-old lost his front tooth while he was staying over <laughs> at his auntie and uncle's house. They don't have any children. And right. so they had our, our child there. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd run upstairs after, run upstairs to bed and came down crying saying he 
I don't know where my tooth is. It just came out. So my sister-in-law's <laughs> hunting through her house and found it on the stairs. I'm not sure how he it came out while he was wow. running upstairs. And he didn't, and he know. didn't notice. It's just, the, <laughs> it's, it's just that sweet... Um, just that sweet family domestic thing that happened at their place that they Lovely. wouldn't have normally experienced. It was the first tooth they had lost in their house. Mm. I just found that really cute. Lovely. Um, I'm going to tell mine last because it's going to tear me up. So, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> well, actually, it it wasn't intended to be, but mine is related to the topic. So. Yesterday, I received a letter in the mail here at the office and it had the sort of the beautiful sort of cursive handwriting and so you knew it was from... A lovely elderly sister somewhere probably. Exactly right. And I opened it up. It was this beautiful three-page letter from a Marist priest from a, a Marist retirement village and in it he was encouraging me in the religious freedom fight mm. and, you know, thanking me for my work and the Catholic Weekly articles and wanting to make a contribution and sort of he... He wanted to tell me the relevant sections of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, that's lovely. And he hand wrote them out for me. Oh, wow. Um, You probably already knew them, but that's beside the point. But that's beside the point. And he took the time to write out the relevant sections that I would need and, you know, and and to encourage me. And I, Father Anthony King, um, I hadn't heard of him before, so I I Googled him and, and found that his ordination date was back in 1960. So he's been a priest now almost 60 years wow. and uh, wow. and he took the time to write and, and not only to encourage me but, but to also sort of contribute to the fight and I just left it thinking, you know, I looked at it and I just, I was praying that like in 50 years time when I'm his age, yes. please God, I'm still there, <laughs> still fighting, <laughs> still fighting for freedoms and for things like that. God bless him. I'm going to write back to him and ask him. Uh, to pray for me and for yeah. the others in this fight that we'll we'll have his stamina and his and keep passing it on. Yeah, mm. my moment of wonder is a memory. I, I was reminded recently of a priest who um, I actually had the privilege of teaching in his first year of seminary, uh, and I knew him a little bit before that, but I got to know him over that first year of seminary teaching him scripture, and then he in his seminary training went to Rome and. Um, uh, I hadn't heard from him for a while. We prayed for, as we do for all seminarians and students, but we'd prayed for him regularly. And then in the middle of my son's very desperate struggle for life about five years ago, right in the middle of all this, when we were begging people for prayers, um, he sent me a photo of his first meeting of the Pope. And in the meeting, uh, there's just this one still shot, which I, I'm going to describe. Every other young priest who's standing in the background is reaching over, trying to touch the Pope and, and very, very much interested in their own experience of meeting the Pope for the first time. And this father, um, I'm not going to name him, embarrass him, but this particular priest is standing there quite seriously, pointing to a card that he's got in his hand. He's talking to the Pope, insisting, I heard later, that the Pope actually pray for the, the child's name on the card, which was my son, Albert. And um, he, should, he then sent a photo of the card itself and and the, there's a photo after that of the Pope praying over directly straight away prays for my son now what struck me about that is not other people were saying oh wow the Pope prayed for your son okay that's cool what's really really profoundly touching is that this is his first and maybe only time to meet the Pope mm. and instead of it being about him and he's he's reveling in the new experience he gave over that experience in his pastoral care for a young you know, so, <laughs> <coughs> sorry, for a young child who is 
um, desperately in need of his uh, prayers. And he, it, it wasn't about him. It was just a demonstration of his pastoral care already before he'd actually come back, if you like, and started a pastoral care. Mm. I, I think that's one of the most yeah. beautiful um, expressions, if you like, of a young priest. And I think perhaps the people around him should take a lesson from mm. that. <laughs> yeah, thank God for our priests. I, I happened to come across the photo earlier this week and it just really touched me and I thought, oh, I still can't talk about it. It's been five years <laughs> and I still can't talk about it without tearing up. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. It's a positive note to end on. If this today's discussion got you thinking, arguing, I hope it got you arguing because we had many points of view. Uh, with this podcast device or whatever else you were listening on, you can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, what you would like us to discuss in the future um, by dropping us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Or you can continue the conversation by joining our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or all the usual social medias, including Discord. You can find all the links in the show notes or on our website. And be sure to write us a review in iTunes. Remember, you have to be signed into iTunes to write a review. And it helps other people who might be interested in this kind of discussion to find us. Um, find our podcast in iTunes and leave a review if you can. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian podcast. We think that this is a, an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends about it. Uh, before we go, let's uh, have a quick shout out to all those people that, or perhaps a few people that we're interested in. Shout out to my sister, Claudine, who starts her new job in the city this week. I'm really excited. Congratulations. And now we can actually meet up for lunch sometimes. <laughs> Wonderful. Monica. Shout out to my nephew, Joshua, and niece, Gabrielle, who for some reason think I'm famous and <laughs> this podcast is just going to add to their belief <laughs> that that is true. <laughs> it's lovely. Um, I'm going to shout out to the the beautiful young priest who, who gave me that moment of um, genuine touch touched our heart and also for his continued prayers and friendship thanks guys for our discussion next week we'll be catching up with katrina zeno on the theology of the body um that's it for now thanks for listening to this catholic life